This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Step into the arena. Mike Weinberg is one of my good friends. He's also a co-founder of the Outbound Conference that I do with Jeb Blunt and Mark Hunter. He's also the author of three books now. The first book, New Sales Simplified, was a runaway bestseller that helped a lot of people understand how to prospect more effectively and how to reach their goals. The second book, Sales Management Simplified, helped a lot of sales managers get better results through Mike's keen observations about what goes wrong when you become a sales manager. This third book, though, is called Sales Truth, and it is the truth. This is my good friend, Mike Weinberg, in the arena. Let's start by talking about how you and I met, just for people who don't know, because we've known each other for how long now? I would say... It was 2010. It was, I, I know when it was, but I was... I was suffering in a, in a job as a senior vice president of sales in a company in transition in uh, 2010. And I had just started blogging and I was looking for influencers and people I could, you know, follow and, and see who were credible. And I started reading the salesblog.com. And I don't know how many followers you had back in 2010, but, you know, I think you've written a blog post every day since then. And uh, I started reading your stuff and I'm like, this is the best sales material I've ever seen. I got to meet this guy. And uh, I sent you a note, which I'll never forget your response. I sent you a note and said, hey, let me fly you to St. Louis to come to a baseball game. And your response was something along the lines, that was really nice of you. I don't like baseball. And why don't we start with a phone call? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, who's this weirdo that wants to fly me to a baseball game? Which I would love at a park, but it was uh, it was sort of out of left field. And so then, we've known each other for nine years. Yeah, and actually, I, I don't know if you remember this. I brought you in to do like a two or three hour yeah. online meeting uh, for my sales team to hear from you, and uh, it was great. That's the first time I heard your story about your your uh, your brain surgery and your history, and uh, it's been ten years of fast friendship. Man, it's crazy. No doubt, it went really fast. I was thinking that was like. 2014 or something so you were there very early when the blog started i'm uh today is june 8th 2019 so we're putting that here because this is a podcast so it'll live out there for a very long time and uh i think in three days it'll be four thousand blog posts so four four thousand over nine and a half years something like that yeah if you're anything you are prolific (laughs) a lot of a lot of words a lot of words. A lot of brain cranking out a lot of words. Well, most of what's, you know, what's left of a brain. Yeah, um, your best words, your best words were the forward to New Sales Simplified because <laughs> you put me on the map, right? And uh, that's been a good run. So, so it was natural. It was natural to come back to you for Sales Truth. So, so it was, uh, I wrote the forward for your first book and I took all the credit for the success of that book, regardless of the wonderful content that's helped transform companies that you wrote after the forward. And then you wrote the forward for The Only Sales Guide. We've both written forwards for our friends' books. 
And then, um, so Mike and I have had a, a long going running joke about the reason that each of our books was successful was a forward that the other guy wrote. But I do believe that that is the best forward I've written in Sales Truth. I do think it's the best one. I mean, it's, I, I think the book was so easy to write that kind of forward for because the book is what it needs to be. And uh, it, it was the right time for somebody to dispel all these myths. So I want to start our conversation about sales truths. So when you say something like sales truths, what you're really saying is that I'm, I'm uh, countering something that we would call sales lies. So you're saying that there's some truth and then there are things that might be considered sales lies. Um, what are the lies? What are you responding to? Well, it's a, it's a gamut. And you know it's interesting as, as I've been processing how to how to talk about the book and expecting some some controversial questions and you know to be challenged by by what I wrote because it's 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 gutsy to say this is the truth right I mean it's not it's not popular today what what compelled me was the fact that what I was reading online particularly on LinkedIn from self-proclaimed sales experts many of them nouveau experts what they were saying was true about selling and that what you had to do to succeed today did not align with what I was seeing with my own eyes in real companies across the globe, across all industries. So I, I felt like someone had to lay down the gauntlet and go, hold on a second. You're telling people everything in sales has changed and nothing that used to work worked. And if you don't do all these new things, not only are you going to fail, but you're going to look like an idiot. You know, you're a dinosaur, you're a Luddite from the, from the dark ages. And yet I go to my clients and I look at the top producer in every company and you know what they're really good at? They're really good at the basics. They're good at stuff that they were doing 10 years ago at telling their story, at prospecting and getting a meeting and going in deep relationally and getting in early, not sitting on their butt waiting for a lead or for someone to get you know through some 57% of the buying process, all that stuff. And I thought, wow, people are so gullible and salespeople are so hungry for help. And so they, they drink the Kool-Aid that's offered online because it looks so easy and I said, you know what? No, no, this is not the truth. I'm going to tell the truth because I have real clients and we'll, we'll get into some of that. I'm sure in this dialogue about how easy it is for people without clients to sit at home in their own basement or maybe in their mother's basement and write a lot of LinkedIn articles and comment every day. Um, it's a different thing when it's like you and, and me and Jeb and Mark and some of our friends that are on airplanes every single day in and out of real company, seeing what's working and what's not. So that's why I felt like we had to write a book on truth. It's, uh, it's interesting to me that the, there's a lot of people that I recognize, and some, for some reason the internet makes it easy for these kind of people to get an audience. But there are people who want to tell you something that absolves you of the responsibility for doing what's necessary to produce the result that you want. So there are people who say, you know, if you pick up the phone and you make cold calls, you're a caveman, you know, you live in dinosaur times. And, you know, I notice more and more they're always hedging, you know, so they're, they're generally hedging now. Like, well, I'm not saying that cold call doesn't work. I'm just saying that you really need to start thinking about like what well, we've been having the social conversation now for a decade. So we've, we've had that conversation. And, you know, I, I recently wrote to somebody like this war has already been fought and won. Like there's not there's nobody that there's very few credible people that would even say the word social selling together right now, but it's this sort of, there's uh, there's something that William F. Buckley said one time about uh, this person is a pyromaniac in a field of straw men, you know, and, and 
you hear words like that and you're like, you set up this straw man, the cold calling is a straw man, you know, so you've got this boogeyman out there, the cold call, it's dead. And, and it's easy to sell the idea that you should be able to get deals without having to pick up the phone. Well, we want it to be true. We, we, we want, want it to be true. that to be true. I, I get it. I get why it was so popular. If I could tweet and blog and hang out on LinkedIn and put out content and fill my funnel, why wouldn't I do that? And, and here's the thing, and I want everyone to hear this, especially listening to Anthony and me here. We love social. We are huge beneficiaries of our social platform, our presence. No one has more presence than this guy I'm, I'm talking to, Anthony, in terms of his, his, his YouTube videos and his 4,000 blog posts and all of his followers. But don't say it's a replacement for what, for what used to work. What used to work still works really well. And what's, what's interesting, and Anthony, I'm with you. I think the battle has been won. It, it is over. There are still a few, a few morons preaching loudly online. I read something even in the past week telling you that you're an idiot for cold calling and the phone doesn't work and, and et cetera. And, and they, and they go on and talk about social. But if you, if you just look at some of the facts, the man who called himself the creator of social selling that is in his LinkedIn profile, he was very proud about that. He was one of the foremost voices for years has been unemployed multiple times in the last several years online begging for jobs. And my question is if social selling was so powerful and you were so valuable as an employee, wouldn't you be the most in-demand person ever? And if social selling was, was what you uh, say you created it to be, shouldn't you have a thriving business where people are just dying to bring you in to help them accomplish what you say it can? So that's on one side. Uh, on the other gender, there was a woman who named her firm hashtag social selling. And it was, she was a prominent voice for years and she's not doing social selling anymore, right? And then you have this other giant social selling training firm who in their own ad for their own salespeople readily admits, if you come here to sell our social selling training, you're going to use outbound prospecting techniques. And I'm thinking, what else do we need to say? And yet still, and you know, this, this is probably the most provocative story in the book is I tell the story of someone today in a very, uh, I don't know if it's well known, but they, they call themselves the foremost experts in social selling and they're the digital sales transformation experts the chief sales officer for this firm, you know, got online with a selfie standing in front of a Forbes magazine with Kylie Jenner on the cover and basically said she didn't cold call her way to a billion dollars in net worth. Sales leaders, can't you see that social selling leads to real sales? Kylie Jenner, B-list celebrity, taking half-naked pictures of herself and posting them on Instagram. And this, this moron is holding that up as digital sales transformation and thinks that your clients that sell private jet fractional ownership and our clients that together sell defense to the government, right? And defense services and, and the pharmaceutical rep and my heavy equipment dealership. Tell me the relevance of that, that, that social selling expert, right? Talking about Kylie Jenner is your example that, well, she didn't cold call her way to that net worth. And you know, I mean, come on. I mean, that's so disingenuous and cheap. So, so the reason that I felt like we had to write this is because there's still noise out there and it tends to be the weaker, more gullible salespeople who most desperately need the help that are the first to fall for the quick fix. Yeah. And that, that's the part that concerns me is it absolves you of the responsibility to actually learn how to sell. And I, I want to, but before we get into a number of the truths that I, I want you to talk about, um, I, I think that there's something interesting about me and you and Jeb that gives us a certain view. And I think that view is, um, I grew up in temporary staffing where there's 600 people that have access to the exact same product that you have. I mean, you're, you're, 
your database is the same database as everybody else's database. The people that live in your city live in your city. You don't have exclusive access to like, I have all the really great ones and they have all the terrible ones. Like you, you can never sell that. Jeb sold smocks. I mean, so if you want to talk about a sexy industry, like a, showing up with a smock to keep people from getting dirty while they're at work, yeah, that is sophisticated, complex B2B with great differentiation. So his is blue, your competitors is blue. They even look the same. Like so, and and just tell people what you sold. Um, oh. Because again, it's another like fascinating, differentiated, sexy product with a huge advantage. Oh my gosh, I had some of the least sexy jobs ever. I sold uh, my first real B2B job once I got out of selling to retailers in the consumer package world. My first real B2B job, I was selling component parts. And most of them were uh, die cut extruded plastic that my company made. And they sold for about seven cents a piece. We sold them by the gross, okay? By the 144, you got really good at 144 math. And I mean, literally, I was driving around a, you know, a company car with a yellow legal pad and a box full of samples and yellow manila folders. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, right? yeah. With a calling card to use at pay phones. So I sold, I sold the most commoditized plastic component, like smocks and staffing. And then later I upgraded. I sold junk mail production, <laughs> right? I, I, I was the guy that would produce your junk mail program. If you were an agency that was making a direct mail campaign as part of a customer acquisition or a customer loyalty deal. So I was either selling envelopes and print or, uh, or plastic before I got into consulting and tech. But um, it's interesting that you bring that up because it, 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 you had to learn how to sell, right? You had to learn how to get yeah. it. No, no one was calling me because of my branding, right? That, that, that's that's the, the point that I want to talk about as, as we lead, lead into um, a number of these truths. But the, I, I, had, uh, I took a picture in a phone booth I put it up on Instagram and somebody said, you literally dialed out of a phone book. And, and I said, that's where the phone numbers were. Like they, they were, they were in a book in alphabetical order at the back of the white pages with a, a little blue, you know, color down the side of it. So you could pull the business section out and get to it. And I dialed, I mean, anything that was reasonable to dial. Like I didn't call gas stations or things that I knew weren't going to use, but I had a pen, I had index cards, and uh, I had a business card and that's all I had. I mean, I had no sales collateral. I had no nothing. And the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because I want to shape this conversation. I think that the reason that you and me and Jeb particularly have a view that we have is because we were in an extraordinarily commoditized market where salesmanship made the difference and where you did not have marketing that could pick up any of this. There was no such thing as inbound other than you know, you were lucky if someone in your company got a referral, that would be the closest thing to inbound that you might get. Uh, the lead factor wasn't a thing. So I think that our confidence that human beings can learn to do these things, they can learn to, to do certain things if you believe certain things are true, is because we've all had this set of experiences. That is, you can pick up the phone and call somebody. You can create value for them. You can create an opportunity where nothing exists. You don't have to have all these external, you know, I, I, I sent something out last week about a buddy of mine who was talking about his sales stack. And I did the math while he was talking about everything that he was using. And at the end I confirmed he's spending $7,000 a year per person on his team sales technology and I'm just thinking like this this is the technology I had I had a legal I had a pencil I had a legal pad you know and 
the, the, the technology is between your ears. I mean, what makes you a great salesperson? It's nice to have technology. It's a, it's a nice to have. And I, I love technology. You love technology. But I think that your view in the sales truth, it comes from the set of experiences that you have that said this is what works and it's why it's possible. And when, if I can do it in this commoditized market, you know, imagine what you can do now with a different set of tools if you can adopt what the fundamental truths and principles of sales really are. Oh my gosh, we could go forever on this. I mean, you know, you're, you're making me think about my dad and the reality, you know, because I think people might have the tendency listening to Anthony and me go back into the 1990s talking about, you know, selling these unsophisticated solutions. The truth is those were, those were not unsophisticated solutions. They were just things that were highly commoditized. And we had to be extreme value creators, right? It wasn't, it wasn't an easy sales job. It was, you were the difference. You had to understand that there was a customer who was stuck in some suboptimal situation and you produced a better value, right? And a better outcome for them. And you, be, you better figure out how to get a meeting and how to articulate that value. And, you know, my dad said to me, going into sales, I remember this, it was the talk, you know, and I'm, I'm on the way to move to St. Louis in my first sales job. And he sat me down. He's like, listen, you got to know this, right? Your number one goal in sales is to make your customer as successful as possible. And if your motivation is to help the customer win, you're always going to win in sales. Right. And you and I and Jeb and others, that's the mentality you bring into a sales conversation, into your approach to a prospect. It motivates you to want to engage them because you look at them as if, oh, yeah, they're not in an optimal situation. They, they're stuck. They could use some help. I'm going to bring them more value. They're going to get a better outcome working with me. I better figure out how to get their attention, which often means interrupting them. And it means that I, I better get them to want to share their situation with me, discovery, Right? There's plenty of sophisticated selling going on in what look like unsophisticated markets. So I don't want people to poo-poo what we're talking about thinking, no, 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 because, and you know this, at your most challenging clients and mine as well, I'm doing some of the very same sales coaching and, and uh, setting up the best practices and the frameworks for, for creating, advancing, and closing opportunities that I'm doing at my least sophisticated clients. It's still sales. Right. And that's where I think it gets it, people get lost. They're like, oh, this business is so complicated. Well, you're talking about doesn't work. No, they're a prospect. They have needs. They're stuck. Somebody there is putting on pressure for an initiative to create a, a faster thing or a lower cost or mitigate a liability or pick the outcome that they need. And you have a solution that can bridge them into that. You need to get in front of them and show them why you can help them. Right. I mean, that's and that, that's where the simplicity in sales comes from. And and something that you say there, I just want to underscore here just a bit. So what your dad said is that you have to be other oriented. So that 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 is you you if you're focused on them, this game is an easy game. If you're focused on you, it's a harder game. But I I think that there's something that we don't talk about enough that I would I would uh, call a sales truth is that you just have to believe in your heart that you can go help and make a difference for people. And I think that when you do that and you say, I can go create value for them, I can make it better. It's easy for people to embrace the role as a salesperson because you can make it better and you have made it better for your clients. And it motivates you to prospect. I, I, I would never want to pick up the phone or interrupt someone and go through the, the hurdles that we do to get someone's attention. If deep in my heart with integrity, I didn't really believe I was going to help them and get right. them something better than they have right now. When you, when you really believe that, and I write about this in whatever chapters, I, don't, I can't remember all the chapter numbers in this new book, but you and I talk about this all the time. If you're motivated to help them, you feel this burden, almost this like the onus is on you. It's this pseudo fiduciary responsibility. That's right. I have to call them because it's like a kid about to run into the street and get hit by a car. You've got to stop them. 
So if you see a prospect that you know is probably struggling because they have the wrong answer, you are really motivated to get in touch with them because you know you're going to help them. And if that's really your pure, authentic motivation to sell, they right. sense that on you. They can smell it. You're authentic. They, they know that you're other centered and like, oh, this is different. I'm not getting pitched at. This is someone who actually sounds like they help people like me and they're concerned that I don't have the right outcome. Maybe they can help me. I'll, I'll invite them in for a meeting. That's my whole view of sales right there. I, I think you and I have different analogies. You have the kid running into the street and I, I describe it as, you know, someone's drowning and you're a world-class lifeguard. You know, like what, what, what's your responsibility if you notice that? Like if you look at it. And if you know that a whole bunch of people are struggling and that you have the ability to help them, what should you do? And you should call and you should interrupt them. And I, I tease people with like, if somebody's drowning in your world-class life, card, like, you know what? They look like they're busy right now. I don't want to interrupt them in the middle of, no, interrupt them. They're drowning. Like you need to go help. Don't, don't, that's don't hold strong. that back. You yeah, know, you, that's strong. And you, you would have a better experience doing this. Uh, a couple of truths I want to talk about um, that I care deeply about. I, I want to talk about the responsibility to prospect and I, I want to frame this up in a, in a way that I don't think you and I have had this conversation before, but what, what I see um, I, I'm, I'm calling the Taylorism of sales. So now we've got somebody uh, like Frederick Winslow Taylor, who's watching people turn a screw and figuring out how to maximize what comes through in the way of throughput by slicing things into the smallest possible role. So now we have a, a BDR, an SDR, an AM, an AE, an SME. You know, you got, you're just slicing this thinner and thinner. And so I see more and more people now imposing the chief marketing officer in with, with automated emails. And so there's, there's just the whole role of salesperson has been sliced. And the, the logic behind this is that I need to preserve my senior best value creating salespeople for closing and I will get people with no experience at all on the front end to make the first, why are you already making that face? Like, <laughs> I'm yeah, not done yet. I'm just processing. I haven't heard you. I've heard you talk about this, but we have not had this conversation. And it's so interesting because I'm imagining what's happening. So keep going. I want so you've got the least valuable person because they just don't have the experience yet. You bring them in and you give them a phone number and that person's responsible for, in their minds, qualifying so the questions are, are you the person that's going to be making this decision? Are you, uh, is this budgeted for you already? You know, uh, how important this is to you? And I don't know that anybody ever feels like, you know, that was one of the most valuable conversations I had with you qualifying me using something like Bant. I mean, that was really wonderful for me. I can't wait to have the next meeting to see what you come up with next. I mean, that, that, the response to just having those questions. So if the SDR or BDR decides to try to create value and then they hand it off, the person that gets it hand off is like, why did you already do discovery? You know, that, that you took away. So we, we've got the people who are not the most valuable person making the call. And I see more and more people, more and more companies rather just saying, well, we want to reserve these people for the value creating part of the process. But what are they trading in value to get that? Qualifying? That's not a good trade. Why, a, why do people it, not show up? So, it's not, like, it's, it's not like these these senior account executives are so busy because they have so many wonderful appointments that they're going so deep and meeting all these stakeholders and building value and consensus and all the stuff you write about in the Lost Art of Closing. Uh, that they're not doing that anyway. They're sitting on their ass. You know, I was in a, I was in an account. I'll, I'm just going to tell the story. And you can circle back to specify the question. I was in a, a client. I don't know, a couple summers ago. 
consulting firm on the West Coast, sophisticated people. And they were having this argument in the room during my workshop, whether the appointments that the SDRs were setting were qualified enough. And, and were they getting enough meetings and the meetings they were getting were crappy. And finally, the top guy in the room, the top, not the top executive, the top salesperson, smacked the table and goes, why don't you all just shut up? He goes, here's the deal. You should look at those appointments set by the SDRs like we look at the social security uh, contribution to our own retirement. If you're counting on that, you're going to starve, right? He goes, that's gravy. That's extra. You got to take responsibility for creating your own meetings. And I'm like, I love this freaking guy, you know, and I, you know, you and I read the same nonsense online every day. How many arguments do we see about no show rates and how do you, how do, why are my SDRs doing this? And you know, what crap and we're wasting the AE's time. And then we set all these meetings and all these demos because everybody wants a demo first. That's all other conversation in the software world. And the, and the prospect doesn't show up for the demo that the SDR set because of exactly what you're saying. You have a, a, an entry or lower level person, nothing against them. They're just getting started, but they don't have the gravitas. They're not really communicating the value. They're not, they're not connecting on an emotional level with the prospect. So there's no skin in the game for the prospect that feels relationally. I need to show up for this demo. In fact, you may not even be there when I don't show up. It's some other person you're handing it off to. So I don't feel like I owe them anything. So I don't know if that helps, but I, I see all this going on. And it goes back to where I think you were, you were going is, why do we think that's going to work, right? So keep going down the path. Why, why, why would you withhold the greatest value creating conversation that will lead to a meeting, that will lead to an opportunity to be creating? Why would you tell that person that they're not the right person to make a call to a client when you know that they're the one that can create the greatest value for them. What, what sense does it make? And I want to talk about, I want you to talk about the truth about prospecting, but I want to just narrow the focus from the book to, so you're a senior rep. So you've been here for 20 years, who better than you to call, but why, why is there so much resistance to having those people do the work that they're the best equipped people that we have? So it would be like saying, well, I have Navy SEALs and there's a conflict right now, but I'm going to send in some kindergarten kids to, to do this mission instead. And you're like, well, no, you have, like, what, why wouldn't you send the, the force that's best able to accomplish the outcome that you want? And why do we let them off of prospecting? I have no flipping idea. <laughs> How's that for an honest <laughs> guy in a lot of companies? I can't, I, you won the argument, like, yes. The jury, the verdict is in, and you just you just convicted. I, I don't know, Anthony. It doesn't make sense because, you know, and Mark writes about this. You know, in, in high profit prospecting, you know, you know, nobody prospects by accident. Like you don't you don't come back to it after you take care of your existing customers. And uh, prospecting is not optional. Like that's one of the chapters in the book. That's what I want you to talk about. Yeah, top it's, people it should be not non optional. It, it's why Jeb's book, Fanatical Prospecting, is what it is. Because what does he say? What does he prove? It's something we we say it. The top prospectors are top salespeople are always prospecting and they understand you have to keep the funnel full and balanced and moving. So really good salespeople who really look at it like business people as CEOs of their own life and their own income and their own deal flow, they know you have to have flow in the pipeline. And the only way to get flow and movement is you keep putting stuff on the top because when you're putting a lot of stuff in the top of the funnel, you don't have closing problems. You follow the lost art of closing and all, you get all those commitments along the way and you sell from an abundance mentality, right? And you don't just roll over when the prospect tries to dictate process to you and, and all this other stuff. So when, you're, when your funnel's full, you, you sell smarter and you also have lots to work and you always have plenty of opportunities to move. That's what top people do. Why we've gotten to this place where it's below you 
to prospect and fill your own funnel? I don't know, but I think it's incredibly irresponsible to think you're going to point the finger and blame somebody else. Right. I mean, you know, what, what do you, what did you say in, uh, and the only sales guys you ever need, right? The, the success in sales is not situational. It's a based on the seller. And the point you're making is if your best seller would be the best at securing appointments with their dream clients, right? Because they can get in there and they have the, the gravitas and the credibility and the experience that when you get one of those people on the phone, you give them 30 seconds to share a story and ask for a meeting and then push back when they get resistance. Their likelihood of getting that meeting is what, a hundred times more than what a junior person's going to be? Easy. Because they can smell that out. I mean, that's my take. I, what's your take? I, I think that um, the, the logic behind it just starts out wrong. And, and, and I've been writing about this for some time and at some time it's going to end up in a book. But the, the idea that efficiency is what's missing in sales is just incorrect. And so this idea of super qualified to the point that you were making, well, how qualified are they? Well, who knows? And you and I would both argue, go have the meeting and find out where they are. And, preach, and preach. Because, because I see a thousand salespeople failing for lack of real meetings for everyone who's wasting time having meetings with unqualified prospects. It's a freaking myth. No one is failing because they're having too many meetings. Can you name one salesperson in any of your clients that's, that's, struggling to produce results because they're having too many meetings with unqualified people. No, you're not, you're not calling the phone book. And that's, that goes back to the myth of, sorry, you get all wound up, but it goes back to the myth of why prospecting doesn't work because the people that you call pyromaniacs lighting straw men on fire out there on the internet saying cold calling is dead. You can't call the phone book. Well, nobody calls the phone book. You got 170, 40, some real number of strategic, right? Perfectly identified prospects you call them their dream clients, right? And they smell and look and feel like your best customers and they have those attributes. That's, that's not the phone book. And a lot of times in our life, when we call those people, if you want them to be perfectly qualified, you're late, right? right, when you're right. late you don't get to shape the criteria and you're not sitting in the consultant's chair. And if you let them get 57% down their buying process, right, which is what a lot of people in our business are preaching is going to happen anyway. You're, you're moving to a new truth here. Yeah, you're, you're moving to a new truth. So uh, go ahead and move into that truth about where where our responsibility is and, and the nonsense that the buyer uh, is supposed to be doing this without you. You know, it's uh, and it's interesting to me. I'll share a, a thought with you. Uh, I, I saw CEB's research on big accounts, big companies that buy things. And um, when they asked them about how much time they spent with salespeople, it was really interesting to me. And uh, I'm, I'm going to add you, you I'm going to ask you to ask your sales truth about where people are in our responsibility to be in front of these instead of behind them. But uh, they spend about 18% of the total time they spend with salespeople. So that, that's what the, the big company said to them. Like we spend about 18% of this time with reps, with sales reps. So some of it's online research, some of it's internal dialogue and meetings that they're having with the task group or whatever the case may be. But that 18% is generally split among three different suppliers. And, and the question is, what do you do with your 6%? Mm. And, and, and as I look at that, you know, my domination strategy has always been uh, own the na narrative, like make sure that I'm the one that's doing the thinking. Uh, two, own the time. Own the time. Like you got so you don't want to have a meeting, but I want to have that meeting because I want more of the 18%. And if I can get 12%, I'm depriving you uh, of, of having that time and have a presence show up. I sat on a, a plane uh, last week with a, a linebacker from the Oakland Raiders. 
he's now a coach. He's a linebacker coach. He did seven years with the Raiders uh, named Ricky Brown. And I, I, I asked him about clock management. I mean, and, and clock management, nobody thinks about that part of the football game as being the sexy part of the game, but the people who are coaches and who understand strategy know like you have to dominate the clock because if I have the ball and you don't have the ball, you're not scoring like, because you don't have the ball, you can't score. And, and then we tell people they're 57% through, they don't need you. And, and we keep telling people, the only thing that you can do is just Mike, just, you just have to serve them. And when they ask you for information, you go get the information like a, like a, a dog getting the newspaper, you bring it back, you hand it off, you get a pat on the head for that. Uh, and, and you dispel some of these myths. So I'll let you go on that. But I just wanted to set that up for you with, uh, with some context. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I got to go a couple places with you. I think, I think, let me say this. And, and you've had this conversation with the authors of the Challenger sale. So, you know, you, you, this is legit. The, the research was good. What people right. have done with the research is what's pathetic. It's, it's right. a 57% number. And you, you vetted this out. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It, it may be accurate based on, on the data. What I always come back and say is, Buyers don't get 57% through their buying process from my client sales teams because my client sales teams are out knocking on doors, picking up the phone, sending emails, getting meetings before some people are even shopping. And what's so ludicrous, if you think about it, and I talk about this in this chapter in Sales Truth, there is no buyer that we know of sitting at their desk with a formalized flow chart that outlines their buying process where there's this giant firewall at the 57% mark that says, do not speak with a value creating salesperson who could help you, who could share info, who could help guide you, who could shorten your thing, who could give you good outcomes. Do, you're, you're forbidden legally to speak with these salespeople before we get 57% through the process. It's a joke. Formal buying processes like that are as rare as a rainbow. Like, so, so it's a fallacy to think that they're, they're, the customer's actually thinking what we're writing, they're doing, because some research came up with a number. You guys with me on that? Like that, it's, it, it's a fallacy. Um, the other part of it is that when you wait that long, you're screwed because you have a more proactive competitor who's gonna get there before you who wasn't sitting on his ass or her ass waiting for the lead, waiting for the customer to be the, as you call him, the servile errand boy, come and drop off the stick, do whatever I tell you. So you're, you're so far behind the curve when you get there, you're playing catch up. Right, it, it, it's a brutal thing. And then we'll get to this other conversation. Just because a customer asks you for a demo or a presentation or they, they give you an RFP to fill out, it doesn't mean you should do it. It doesn't mean it's the right time because you end up getting commoditized because you're allowing them to dictate the process and you're stealing from yourself the right. opportunity to differentiate your approach, your product, your outcomes, how you'll tailor your presentation and your proposal because, because you're not involved earlier. So I don't know if that's where you wanted to go, but yeah, I know that's right. It's so confusing to me that, that we let research uh, jack with what we know is accurate. Actually the research, you know, and you know this because I, I had Brent Adamson come on video so I could actually post it and show people. The point of the 57% is you need to get there before zero. Like you, you, you're supposed to be being more proactive to get there. Don't let him get that far without you. But what happened? What, but, to play that out. The, li the lies were they're 57% through. So you need to be on social trying to, to communicate with them and, and you need to be subservient and let the buyer decide what comes next. And, and, you know, the pushback on this is if the buyer knew how to get the result that they wanted, they'd already have it. That what, what they do is, you know, you, you sell what you sell to 10,000 customers, they buy for one. Who, who knows better what the process should look like, you or them? 
they they bought it once. And when you look at things like, you know, the sophisticated solutions people sell now, like an ERP, you might buy that twice in your life. And if you buy it a second time, you're miserable that you had to buy it a second time to begin with. Like you don't even want to do that. You want the best advice from people who can tell you like, let me tell you how to get there in the least painful way with the best possible outcome. Well, when you have thousands and thousands of experiences and maybe not just personally, but inside the four walls of your company, you should be on your front foot being proactive about these things and getting in front of that and not listening to the nonsense about buyers not needing you anymore. Let me, let me take a slight uh, right turn in this conversation to include a, another group of people that may be listening and think what we're saying isn't relevant to them because the majority of the sales forces I'm working with, those people have hybrid roles. They're not just hunters. They're not SDRs. They're not just senior account executives trying to close new business and hit some ARR number. They're sales guys in traditional businesses who manage territories or account lists or in the insurance world, a book, right? Whether you're an insurance and it's a book, a portfolio, or you're a, a territory guy and you've got customers, the same principles Anthony and I are discussing here about being late um, and waiting apply in your world where you default to over-serving and babysitting your favorite accounts and you're always worried about responsiveness and renewals and running out parts and some of my industrial clients where um, the lower performing salespeople think they're going to earn uh, the favor of a client by running out the delivery instead of letting a delivery person do it. So we have an entire group of salespeople today over serving, you know, addicted to their smartphone in constant communication where they've set themselves up as the concierge and the estimator and the delivery boy for their customer and they love it. The salespeople love it because it makes them feel good and they're ingratiating themselves and they're, they're keeping the customer happy. But everything I just described isn't really sales. It's glorified service work. And what I see in a lot of my clients is it's not just that they're late to the opportunity. It's that they're not selling. They're working 50 or 60 hours a week. They're doing hundreds of emails. They're, they're, they're texting clients. There's a high customer satisfaction rate, but they don't make their quota. And they're falling short bringing in that new business because they don't spend any time selling. And it, it's the same concept, right? Just at, at, a, at a less sophisticated conversation. If you don't get selfish and carve out time to that's work a, on top of the funnel. That's right? our next truth. You're yeah, go, go, right go, go, go. yeah go I, I want to make one comment about that. So what, what you're describing is um, something that, that I've, I've written about everybody taking a step to the left. So the account executive takes a step left into the account manager's role. The account manager takes a step left into customer service role. The customer service role now becomes, you know, responding to every every delivery thing, and it's, it just continues to work all the way down. Because when you have a major problem at a comp, uh, a customer, what tends to happen is you give that problem to the highest competency. So you're like, who has the best ability to work with this customer? The account executive. No, 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 that's the account manager's job to be able to handle their day-to-day -day things. No, 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 the account executive is better at it, so we're going to give it to them. So here's what I would say. If that's you, you negotiate this deal with your company. You say, I will deliver these parts. And while I'm doing that, I need the delivery guy to go through my leads and call every one of them and schedule meetings for me. And if they're willing to schedule the meetings, I'm willing to do the delivery. But if not, maybe they make the delivery and I'll stay on the phone. And, and the truth of the matter is we all need to take a step back to the right and like get back in your role. If you're an AE, be an AE, don't be an AM. And, and I have a, a friend in a business who just demoted 90 salespeople to 90 AEs to AMs and they lost one and the other said, thank you. I'm, I'm happier in this role. This is the work that I like to do. 
and and they really don't like the hunting part of it. They don't like the opportunity creation. They don't like the conflict with customers. And and if that's the role, then that's the role that you belong in. But we we make a huge mistake when we let people say, I'm going to take my sales force off the field and have them do other work because then you don't have a sales force on the field. Yeah. And that's, you know, you and I are good at yelling, yelling at executives about that. And we can have the whole hunter zookeeper conversation because everyone defaults to serving their customers. Right. But from the, from the salesperson perspective, I got to say, you got to be careful. Even if your company's not doing it to you, you do it to yourself. You make yourself feel busy. You, you love the attaboys you get from going to serve a client and you end up, working a lot, but not filling the funnel. And the question, I mean, I just challenge you guys, and I'm, depending on the length of your sales cycle, maybe you ask this every week, maybe you ask it every month. How many opportunities did you create in the last seven days or the last 30 days? What did you put in the pipeline? What right. ops are there now that we're working that we weren't working seven days ago or 30 days ago? That's the most important question you could ask yourself. Even more important than than proposals you put out or closing is what's going into the funnel. You, Anthony, you say it. I stole this from you. I mean, most people don't have a closing problem. They have an opening problem, right? right. It's, the right. funnel doesn't have enough in there, and that's 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 criminal. The uh, I, I want to talk to uh, calendar management. So uh, I, I want to talk about that, and I, I want to um, have a conversation you and I have had. But there'll be people that listen to this that didn't hear you and I have this conversation. Uh, because it was private at first, and then we had some of this conversation at Outbound. So I'll, I, I just want to go back over some ground for other people. Uh, we have all, uh, me, you, a whole bunch of us in in this world, have recommended that people have a 90-minute call block. And I recently did a, a YouTube video where I said I, I gave you the horrible advice. I mean, the worst advice I could possibly give you. You should have a 90-minute administrative task block, and you should have six and a half hours of your day dedicated to opportunity creation and opportunity capture because that's the only thing that we're measured on. It's the only thing that we're paid on. It's the only thing that we should be doing. And for some reason, because people were doing so little prospecting, we went with like, can we get them to do 90 minutes? And then we're like hoping we can get 40 minutes out of them. You know, totally ridiculous. If you're a salesperson, like you, you get paid for winning business. That's what you get paid for doing. And that's opportunity creation. It's opportunity capture. Nobody's like, Mike, listen, your salesforce.com is impeccable. It's so good. You're a, a, you're an example for everyone. We're doubling your commission this month just because you've done such a good job with your data entry. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody makes club for getting to inbox zero. Like, no I'm, one. That's the new thing. Like, you know, we all want to be efficient. I get it, but don't, don't, don't brag to me about how clean your inbox is. Uh, show, show me what you put in the funnel. You know, I love how you say, you know, uh, create and capture. I've got these three sales verbs. We're saying the same thing. If you're not creating, advancing, or closing an opportunity, and you're in sales, you're probably working on the wrong thing. Right. And, and that's very convicting. You know, Brian Tracy, 100 years ago, said this. Brilliant, right? Is what you're doing right now leading to a sale. And right. You say, you know, if you're not creating or you're not capturing, I'm saying if you're not creating, advancing, or closing, you're probably doing the wrong thing. You've got to get focused. It, and it's calendar. Anthony, here's the thing. I, I love the confession that you think we've been wrong all these years. And that what, what I'm going to translate what I hear you saying is we're in such demand from our own company and the corporate admin crap they put on us and the things our clients ask us to do. I, I tell the story in the book in Sales Truth. I romanticized about selling in the 90s, right. having to pull over and go to a payphone. With a, a pager. Yeah. You know, we we're so addicted to our smartphones and we've got our customers addicted to texting us when they need something. 
we're interrupted all day long. And you could work like a madman doing client service, but never fill the funnel. And you're not going to make the money you need. You're not going to pr pr produce for your family. And you're not going to be ev evaluated and appreciated by your company appropriately. Because if you're in sales, your job is to grow revenue. You are not a babysitter of a piece of God's earth or a caretaker for a list of accounts that have been entrusted to you. If you want to make real money and you're in sales, then you've got to produce new stuff. So that's, that's my challenge. And it's a big, it's a big one. So I, I want to talk about blocking and I want to talk about, I don't want to, I want you to talk about it. This is all on video. I probably put the video up anyway. So I just have you now showing people like I got 10 minutes. No, I know I'm cool. You're I got 10 minutes too. Uh, Talk about uh, managing your time in the calendar because I think this is this is the starting point for this conversation. Is like what what should go on that calendar and what what is most important to you and what do you do to firewall that time? Well, you buy Anthony's Anthony's planner to use to plan your to plan your 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 selling. I mean, that's you, that's the first thing you do. You have um, no idea how many people just write and like. I blocked 90 minutes. I got like six hours worth of work done in 90 minutes because I've just did it. I had it uninterrupted. I'm like, right. It's awesome. You know, here's where it's, it's a hard conversation, right? And it, what amuses me is we're recording this in the middle of 2019 and we're still talking about time management. Yeah. And you and I have been talking about time management for the nine years we've been friends. Because the, the crazy reality is, is this is the number one issue whether you're an executive, a business owner, a manager, or a salesperson. The most effective leaders and the most effective productive salespeople are selfish and they say no and they extricate themselves from low value bullshit. Can I say that on your podcast? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they, they get really good at not letting people put work on their desks and they, they don't live in their inbox. And they, what, you, what I love about the way you're, you're framing it is we're gonna, we're gonna block out time to work on email. We're going to block out time to work on admin and nonsense. So we're free to sell the rest of the time. Right. And what I would just add to that is what I beg you to do is do your opportunity creation work, the hardest work, the prospecting, the cold targeting first thing in the day, because if you get it out of the way that frees up the rest of the day to do some service stuff and then to play with your warmer opportunities. What I see is because we, we all want to close the deal. We default to service work because that's what's urgent in our face. But then when we, when we actually have time for proactive selling, we start by trying to close our hot deals. And what I say in sales truth is flip that on its head. Go counterintuitive here. Ignore, ignore your hot deals. Work, work on your targeted account list. Anthony, what Anthony calls your dream clients first. Spend that couple hours in the morning doing the hard stuff, cold outreach. Yes, social. Yes, snail mail. Yes, email. Yes, referral ask. Everything you can do and get, get a couple hours of that in and then it frees you up later to move some warmer deals to the next stage to try to meet more new stakeholders and then for your hot deals, trying to eliminate those last obstacles and do what you got to do to push it over the finish line. But, but turn the funnel upside down and work, work on the coldest stuff at the top of the funnel first. That'll ensure you have a good flow of deals. You'll never be opportunity starved if your best selling time early in the morning before the crap hits the fan is spent trying to create opportunities. That's the strongest counsel I can give. And it's a sales truth. And the, the, the truth of the matter is there, let's say you spent your first 90 minutes prospecting. The first 90 minutes of the day, you made that first block prospecting. If the rest of the day goes to hell, your prospecting's done. You know, and I, and I see people that would open their inbox first thing in the morning, go to LinkedIn first thing in the morning. I have this phone now it has no social apps on it whatsoever 
because I don't, I don't want to you don't trust yourself. Right. I don't, I don't want to. And actually I took them all off and then I got, I got over ever picking my phone up. I stopped picking my phone up cause there's nothing to do on the phone. Like the, the, there was nothing to look at. Then I put them back on and I started picking the phone up again. I'm like, Nope, they don't even belong on here. When I open my web browser, uh, for, for 15 minutes, I'll look at LinkedIn th at that time when I actually have it on the calendar to do that. I'm not going to let that be a disruption to my day because there's nothing there for me. There's nothing there. I, I am LinkedIn gave me an inbox I didn't ask for. And like yours, it fills up every day. So I, I have to look at it, but it's not the most important thing that you can do because the most important thing is opportunity creation and opportunity capture. So you go cold, warm, hot, if your day comes off the tracks, because sometimes they do, you've done what you needed to do to make sure that you've got a pipeline. And that's going to, I mean, the only thing that inoculates you from a bad, uh, a bad outcome is a pipeline. I mean, that, that's the inoculation. Say that again. Somebody go tweet that. That's it. I mean, you, the only thing that inoculates, say it again. What's that phrase? The only thing that inocul inoculates you from bad results is a pipeline. I mean, that's all you've got. And you've got it or you don't have it. You're either inoculated or you're susceptible to, to harm. Ladies well, and gentlemen, that's why I'm talking to the smartest man in sales right now. Dude, that was well, precious. Well, we, we still need to have one more uh, quick conversation. So I'm cited in the book multiple times. Yeah, your name next to your name may be the most mentioned book name in the book. Yeah. Okay, but I want to make sure that uh, is it mentioned more than Jeb Blunt? Oh, yeah. Is it? All right. Well, good. Then I've got that going for me. And uh, what about Mark Hunter? Yeah. All, all mentioned though. I think you're mentioned more than Katie and my kids and my dad. <laughs> and, yeah. But you know, you have those books that have been a big influence on me and plus, you know, and I, I say this to people, Anthony, I mean, you're my number one go-to sales guru. I've taken you into my clients when I'm like, you know what you, I, I've taken you as far as I can go. You need this guy. Um, uh, you're the guy go to when I need sales help. So it, it's natural. And, yeah. uh, I'm humbled and honored and um, I'm thrilled that I got, I mean, I think I asked you to write the forward for this book. I don't remember if you did or not, but I'd already decided. So yes, I think you did. I think I did because I wanted to write the forward to this book. And I got to tell you, it was the most fun for me to read the book and write this forward. And, and I wrote it a couple times. So but if, this is Thank like you. the yeah. inside let baseball. Me, let me make one comment about the sales truth. Because I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, picking on the charlatans and the nouveau experts. And I just want everybody to hear, you know, that's about 20% of the book in terms of volume is me laying down the gauntlet going, no, no, these are lies. And let me show you why. And I actually use the words uh, right from the actual people that said them. So there's no accusing me of making this up. Like I have the screenshots, like these are actual excerpts from people's own posts, but don't, don't, um, don't think I went into this trying to be mean spirited. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. I would, I'm trying to protect salespeople. Because the garbage that's being preached is really dangerous, especially to people that are hungry and desperate for truth, and they, they fall for this gullible nonsense. But 80% of the book are the truths about what works. Prospecting, your attitude, your messaging, right? Uh, the target list, your calendar, and then how to upgrade, how not to get in the procurement pit, right? How to sell with a higher price. Uh, you know, I, we share some of the best practices of some of the best salespeople I've seen. So I just, I, I want people to hear two things. One, I didn't write this to be mean or to pick on people who are preaching nonsense. I'm doing it to protect the salespeople. And 80% of the book is still based on what do you need to do to, to do what the subtitle promises, win more new sales. Well, um, you must read the book. 
don't miss the 20% where uh, there is chapter and verse on the charlatans because you will enjoy that as much as you've enjoyed anything. Um, I've written three books. My first book was the most fundamental of all books. It was a competency model for being a B2B rep in today's day and age. The second one was how to control the process and become consultative. And the third one was about competitive displacements and value creation. You've now written three books. So your first book was uh, very fundamental. So when people are like, well, what's your favorite book? And I look at your first book, the, that book is so prescriptive about how you prospect. So if you're ever confused about like, well, how do you do that? It's already there. I mean, it's there. So you, you go with new sales simplified sales management simplified is a cure for, for anybody who's struggling to figure out how to, to occupy that role after having bad examples in that role and not really knowing, you know, wh what you get to see by working with so many companies. But of, of all my books that you've written, uh, this one is my favorite. It's, uh, it's your best written. And I, I would say that uh, the, there's some things that are just exactly right. And this book is exactly right. So you did an incredible job. It's my favorite one of your books. Uh, I love all of them. But this is my favorite one. And it's really, uh, it's really can, generous. Can, For me, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, man. You know, I, I felt like this is the, and I had, I had to sell the publisher on this. You know, they want, they, publishers like how-to books, you know, because yeah. it's, it's, it's a safe book for them. I had to sell them that this is the book the sales community most needed right now. And this is the book I really wanted to write. And, I, you know, it, it was weird. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm eight years older than when I wrote the first book. And I've been around the world a couple of times, literally, with, with these clients that, you know, you and I are busy. We barely get to talk to each other because we're, we're running like mad. And I felt like I was in a position to just tell the truth. And I, and I feel like and this is this is the frustration. So many people, because today there's no barrier to entry to be a sales expert, right? If, if you have a keyboard and access to an internet site, you are a sales thought leader, especially if you're self-proclaimed. You know, I make in the book, I make fun of a guy who calls himself a number one international best-selling author. Not just international best-selling, number one international best-selling author. His book in his own country is ranked like 387,000 on Amazon. And it's a smaller country. And it has four reviews in total on Amazon. And I'm thinking, this is a number one Amazon bestseller. Like, it doesn't, nothing about it makes sense. So, so I felt like I was in a position to go, no. I'm, I'm just, and, and I hope I don't come across as, as arrogant in the way I share what I'm seeing as truth. I'm just saying, this is what I see in real companies, whether it's big data or big defense or big equipment, or big distribution. These are just the types of clients I'm in, and this is what's working, and this is what's not. And what I'm seeing with my own eyes in real companies is very different than what I read about on LinkedIn from people who claim to be experts. And that's why I felt compelled to write this. And I, I, I appreciate your kind words. I'm excited for the, the response from the sales community. It's, it's gonna be your best-selling book, and uh, it's a wonderful book. We're going to send a note out to uh, my list to tell them to come out and listen to this with a link. And uh, thank you for sharing the truth. Dude, I love you and I appreciate you and I respect you. Thanks for the support and the help and the incredible forward. And I'm just going to go on record uh, a month from now when, when people are talking about this book and its bestseller status, Anthony Anarino is going to take the credit, which I'll give him <laughs> partial credit for, for its success because it's a kick-ass forward. So thanks, my friend. Thank you. That was Mike Weinberg. You can find him at MikeWeinberg.com. You can also find his new book, Sales Truth, anywhere books are sold. Go to Amazon.com. 
go to Barnes & Noble, go to his site, pick up the book, pick up the bonuses that Mike will give you when you buy the book. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I write and post daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. When you go to either one of those two, we're going to ask you to sign up for the Sunday newsletter and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Please do that so that you're always aware of what content we're creating here. Also, if you're looking for help with productivity for yourself or for your sales force, check out b2bsalestoolkit.com. It's my planner that helps people get massively better outcomes. Also, if you're looking for training, go to b2bsalestraining.com. That's where you can find my program, Sales Accelerator. I'm Anthony Anarino, and I'll see you next time in the arena.